So I hadn't realized how much of a rhythm I get into on the weekends, like when it comes to getting ready and kind of doing stuff for church. And so I, I do the exact same things every Sunday morning and have done it for, I mean, however long we've been doing this. And, and so today was a, just an absolute, like, it was just felt awkward and weird. And I was thinking, I'm going to love the idea of Saturday Night Church until about two today where I was like, oh man, this is terrible. Like it was messing everything up. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to love it. I'm going to think this is the greatest thing we've ever done. And so at 6.30, I normally get up and be like, this is lovely Saturday night church. But today, a little bit frazzled, a little bit on the fritz. So, uh, but that's all right. Uh, it's a beautiful day, and I'm excited that so many people came out. We didn't really know what to expect. You can just put that anywhere. Don't worry about it, man. It's good. Um, we're excited everybody came out and that you're here. And we are continuing this journey. We decided to continue this journey the book of Acts, not do anything different. We're just meeting at a different time. But it's an important journey that we're on, and we are wrapping up chapter 10 tonight. And for the past few weeks, what I've been telling everybody is that Acts chapter 10 is probably the single most important chapter in the entire book. It changes the course of redemptive history. Now, there's a lot of really important chapters in Acts, and, and I've said that probably on more than one occasion. And we've looked at uh, the kind of the first giving of the Holy Spirit that we saw at Pentecost. We've looked at some other really powerful things, but... But this thing that happens in chapter 10 changes the course of all redemptive history. And that's why it's so important, because it is the very reason by which we are even gathered here on a Saturday night, because of what God has done through Jesus Christ that opened the floodgates to humanity, that if we profess faith in him, we have access to eternal God. Those promises are no longer for the Jewish people, but they have been fulfilled and have been opened wide and we are now part of God's covenant family as people that profess faith in Christ. And all this really unfolds in chapter 10. And it's not easily taken. It's not easily swallowed. It's kind of a, a wrestling match that happens. And so we've been looking over the past few weeks, and we're going to wrap it all up um, tonight. So quick little background of, of kind of where we are and how we got there, and then we're going to jump into the backside of uh, Acts chapter 10. So we've been quite a journey, right? 26 weeks now, we have been looking verse by verse, not skipping one single word, one sk single verse, as we just sort of unpack and look through what is happening uh, in this chat, in this book, in this letter. And it's really remarkable because I've, I've said all along, it's not really a letter. It's more of a call. It's the call of the church. It's the call of the Christ follower. It's, it's who we are supposed to be together and as individuals that say we profess faith in Jesus Christ, that we are followers of his, that we are Christians, which is simply what that means. We are followers of Jesus. And it is a modern day call and it is an ancient call and is one that we are on uh, together. And it's been kind of an incredible journey. We started with Jesus' ascension into heaven and we have seen the church unfold and we have watched them go through incredible times of persecution all the way up to this moment. We are seeing this incredible time of peace and blessing. And of course that won't last. But where it's been the past few weeks is that Peter has made his way to a town called Joppa, where he was part of a really amazing miracle. He actually stepped into the life of a, of a woman named Tabitha who loved the Lord and who helped people that were poor and just served people. And, and she had passed away because she had gotten sick. And God used Peter to do this incredible miracle where he actually, by God's power, raised her from the dead. And it was an incredible scene. And we sort of explored it. And a lot of people in Joppa came to profess faith in Christ because of it. And he stayed there in that town for a while. Spent some time there and did ministry and life with people. And he was staying with this guy named Simon, who was a tanner. Uh, and we talked about the implications that a Jewish person staying with a Gentile and, you know, what a tanner was and how that was rejected by Jewish culture and how odd it was that Peter would even be there in the first place. And, and chapter 10 began with that moment. 
as a guy in, in a village about 30 miles away in an area called Caesarea had a vision from God while he was praying. And that vision said, hey, listen, I want you to go to Joppa, and I want you to find Simon. He's staying by the ocean with that tanner, also named Simon. And I want you to tell him to come back with you to Caesarea, and I've got, I want you to basically tell him that you're going to uh, have him into your house, and he's going to tell everybody a bunch of stuff. So Cornelius, who was the guy that God spoke to, did just that. He sent men for Simon, Peter, um, in Joppa. And about the same time, Peter's praying, and he has this vision from God, and God says, listen, I'm going to show you something remarkable, and then you're going to go with this guy who's coming for you. And he gives him this really specific vision. And he talked about how Peter was praying, and he saw this sheet or this sail being lowered from the heavens by its four corners, and in it contained all kinds of birds and animals and four-legged creatures, all the things that God had made. And the Lord commanded him to get up from where he was and kill and eat them, which, of course, was against all the Jewish food customs. And so Peter says, I can't do that. I've been clean my whole life. And God says, don't call anything impure that I've made clean, right? And then he says, get up. Some guys are basically here for you. So he's pondering these things. He goes downstairs, and sure enough, Cornelius' guys are there, and they say, hey, you're supposed to come with us. Uh, Cornelius had a vision that you're coming, and, and Peter says, well, I kind of knew that you were coming because God told me, and so let's get together. And sure enough, the next day, they head down to Cornelius' house. Peter pondering this vision, trying to figure out what's going on, and we talked about the dietary food laws, and we talked about what God was doing, all those things to get us to last week where Peter walks into Cornelius' house. Cornelius throws himself at Peter's feet and says, basically in worship, and says, I'm unworthy. And Peter stands up and says, stop doing that. I'm just a human, right? And he says, why am I here? And he says, God told me that you were coming, and you were supposed to listen to everything that you say. And so Peter walks into this room full of Cornelius' family, all Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, except for the six folks that Peter had brought with him. Relatives, friends, people of his household, like people that were part of Cornelius' inner circle. And, And Peter stops, and he looks at them all, and he says, you realize that, that ordinarily my custom, that it's against even the law for me to walk into this house because it would make me unclean. But God has showed me something different. And normally I would have moved away, but I'm right here. So tell me what it is I'm supposed to tell you. And Cornelius basically says, tell us whatever God said. And so Peter launches into this sort of gospel presentation about how God has changed his heart and then he preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at last week was the fact that we are called to shatter the prejudices um, and the exclusivity that has entered into our churches that are both racially kind of driven, that are socioeconomically driven, how we are called to, to look to shatter those. And they have creeped into our hearts, into the deepest resources, resources of our minds, and how we have got to be about reconciliation. And then we've got to come with repentant hearts. And we talked about Peter's heart, and how he's repentant, going, I used to think this way, but God has changed me. And he's changing me even now. We talked about repentant hearts, the difference about just confessing something and actually repenting of it. And we talked about the true gospel that Peter preached and how that's, we looked at these things and said, this is who we're supposed to be as a church. All that to get us to today, we're going to wrap up chapter 10 because right in the middle of Peter talking, the Holy Spirit shows up in a beautifully crazy way again. And it's going to change everything. So we thought things were changing until they really change, which we're going to see today. So if you've got that Bible, open up to Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 44. And um, we're going to kind of dive into it a little bit and see what happens. Because these are, these are game-changing words that we're going to experience today. They're game-changers for you and I, really, at the end of the day. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the fact that it is 
living and active. God, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. God, that you tell us it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Your word is truth. God, we do not believe that the Bible is some kind of guidebook for our life, but instead, God, it is the very anchor and foundation upon which we sink our entire existence. And so, Lord, I pray that we won't take it lightly. We know that you reveal truth to us. We don't discover that. So, God, teach us. Use your Holy Spirit to teach our heart. We confess, God, that we are prejudiced, that we are broken, that we are sinful. We have certain ideas. Uh, God, we have certain images about you and about people, and we carry all of those in to life. And so, Lord, we give you full permission to break those down. Take a moment in your own life and just ask God um, maybe to teach you something new this morning, whatever, even if it's just something simple, that God would just teach you something. for someone beside you and in front of you, behind you. Just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Remember this thing is not about us. We are existing in community and be in the habit of praying for the people that you are in community with. Even if you don't know who they are, just pray for them. Pray for someone beside you. God, we ask that you would be glorified and exalted as we open your word and as you teach our hearts. Lord, we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 44. So Peter is in the middle of this. He has already made this sort of repentant, like, I I would have, but now I'm not. And, And Cornelius says, well, then tell us what God has told you to tell us. And so Peter basically does just that. He preaches the true gospel, not his story not about his life, not his testimony about how he used to be a fisherman and God. He just talks about Jesus and what Jesus has done and how that has changed everything. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, so he's still in the middle of that sort of gospel presentation. While he was still speaking, these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For he heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Well, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down and where I was, and I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and reptiles and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure and clean has ever entered my mouth. And a voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, the three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying, and the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered this man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel appear in in this house and say, Send for Joppa, for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your whole household will be saved. And I began to speak 
And the Holy Spirit came on them as it did on us in the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So we wrap up chapter 10 um, and, and move into verse or chapter 11 with a really significant outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's an incredible thing. I mean, while Peter is in the middle of this sort of gospel presentation, this Jesus has done and Jesus is and he is alive and all these things in the middle of that, almost in an interruption, the Holy Spirit shows up and it descends or falls upon all those Gentiles that are gathered there in Cornelius' house. And they begin to speak in tongues and they begin to praise God, very similar as we'll talk about to what happened in Acts chapter 2. And the people that are with Philip, those, or Peter, those six guys that came with Peter, they're astonished. They can't believe it. Even though Peter had kind of prepped them for what God was doing and he'd heard about his vision and he'd even stayed with Simon the Tanner, they were still blown away that the Holy Spirit had shown up in the same way for the Gentiles that it did for the Jews, the Jewish believers, if you will. And they were astonished by this. And, and Peter says, why in the world should these people not be baptized? They've been given the exact same gift as we have. And so he ordered that his guys there take these folks to go and be baptized with water. And he baptized them, and he remembered what Jesus himself had said about how John will baptize with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he was realizing that this gift that was given to these first century believers that were Jewish Christians is now being handed out to this group of Gentile people as they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And they were baptized, and they asked him to stay with them for several days. So several days go by, and, and the word gets around, and rumors flew around at that point in time, even though there was no electronics or something like that. They, word spread, and word gets all the way back to Jerusalem that Gentiles had been baptized with water, and they had received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and his group of guys, they're walking back, and they make their way into, into Jerusalem, and it's almost as if this group of, of, they call them circumcised brothers, which are Jewish Christians, basically meet them at the gate, and they criticize them. Right, right there as he comes into town, they criticize him and say, we have heard that you have gone to the house of Gentiles and you have had dinner with them, right? Which is kind of surprising because you think they would be really upset about the baptizing and the Holy Spirit, but really they're just sort of more upset that they had dinner with some people that weren't Jewish, which on a side note should tell you how important kind of mealtime and hospitality and life sharing was in that culture. It's such a throwaway idea to us, sharing a meal with someone. We're in a fast food culture where food is just purely for shoving in our mouths. But in those days, it literally was a lifestyle exchange. And what they're mad about is that, G, uh, that, that Peter took time to open his life to people that weren't Jewish, right? We, don't, we really don't see Peter going, yeah, I know you're mad about that, but you should have seen my time with a tanner. That was crazy. But he doesn't say that. He's basically like, yeah, but listen, listen. He said, but let me tell you what happened. So they're upset and they're criticized. He says, let me tell you. And he begins to precisely explain to them every single thing that had happened about how these six guys had gone with them and they had been witnesses to what unfolded and how the Holy Spirit had showed up and, and how basically they had received the exact same gift as we have. And he word for word explains everything that we saw just told about in chapter 10, word for word, about the vision and the sheep and the animals and, and God showing up and the Cornelius' house and all these things, word for word for word for word. 
And he gets to the end and he basically says this. He says, when I saw this, right? If God gave him the same gift as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And so when they heard this, right, these other Jewish Christians, they had no further objections, right? They had just heard this incredible testimony, right? And they said and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Which is where you and I, and I'm guessing we don't have any sort of Hasidic Jewish folks here. I think I know relatively everyone, but that means that you and I, right, because of this moment, have been grafted into God's covenant family through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This moment ends, and we are now part of God's covenant family, that through Jesus Christ, we now have repentance of sins into eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 throws open the floodgates of the gospel to the nations. Now, I know for a lot of us, that doesn't seem like a big surprise because we're, you know, sort of 21st century Christians and we see the gospel moving around the world. But you've got to understand there was a moment in time where people believed that this was just for them because of their heritage and their understanding of God's move. This was an incredibly radical thing that was happening. And the floodgates, the gospel of the world have been thrown open. And nations are now basically open to the truth of the gospel. And it was a hard thing to swallow for a lot of those Jewish Christians. And that Peter was on the forefront of this sort of revolutionary moment and step. So a lot of our text that we look at as we walk through Acts has got application pieces to it. And some of it just has teaching moments to it. And this is one of those that sort of got a a teaching wrap-up moment and a little bit of, of sort of application that we might be able to see. But there's a couple things that I really want you to understand that I think Luke, who is our writer, because remember Luke wrote Acts and he wrote the book of Luke, um, that he is, he's written that I think he really wants us to understand. And there's a couple of reasons and things that he does, I think, that will show us that. And the first thing that I, I don't want you to miss is that Peter's vision and its implications are so important that Luke explains them word for word in detail, separated by just 34 verses. So 34 verses ago, we hear word for word this vision that God gave Peter and all the things that it would entail, everything from the four-footed animals to the sheet coming down from heaven, all of that. 34 verses later, we see the exact same, almost word-for-word account. Really bad writing, right? Unless something really is important at play here. Very few times in Scripture do we see a section of text that is virtually repeated in that tide of context. And when that happens, we have to understand that that repetition means something. It means something. Now, you got to remember that Acts was written to one person. It was written to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Lover of God is what his name meant. Luke wrote these things so that he might have a picture, and all those that he shared this letter with might have a picture of what happened from the, the birth of Jesus all the way through the sending of the church. And he stops in a few moments and he says, basically, did you get that? Like, Theophilus, did you just see what happened. And in case you missed it, I'm going to tell it again in its entirety. Because what Luke could have easily done is just said, you know, and, and so he explained to them his vision, but he retells it. And this is not like typing on a computer. You'd think you'd want to save space. These guys are writing this stuff out on parchment, and he retells this same thing. It was that important. It was a surprise to everybody. Remember in verse 35, the astonishment that everybody has? The people that were with him were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even to the Gentiles. Peter had walked 
30 miles with six guys from Joppa to Caesarea and probably told them all about his vision, about this sheet and about the animals and about what God was doing. And they were probably already surprised that Peter had spent days, if not months, with Simon the Tanner, whose house he wasn't even allowed to be in as a Jewish person because people that worked with dead animals were unclean. And he was a Gentile. They had seen God doing works, yet when this happened, when this falling of the Holy Spirit happened, they were blown away, astonished. They were mesmerized, if you will, and surprised, all wrapped into one. And so this account is retold because of its importance, almost as if Luke's going, Theophilus, I don't want you to miss this because this changes everything, everything. And we know that Theophilus most likely was a Gentile from his name. So he's basically saying, do you get it? This is for you. Pretty cool stuff. So we see this picture that it's that important, that it's, very, it's worth repeating twice, really in the same chapter almost, 30 verses separating, right? This is also, the second thing I want you to see, this is the same outpouring, the same manifestation that we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, If you remember way back when, like 24 weeks ago, we looked at this account where the early believers, the church, if you will, that had yet to really become the church in function, they were the church in person, were gathered together and they were waiting on the promised gift from God. Jesus had been ascended into heaven and he had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And the Holy Spirit, the counselor, will come upon you. But they didn't know what that meant. So they were gathered together in this room, all the believers present. And it says, as they were there on that day of Pentecost, A wind, the Lord blew through the room like a holy wind, rushing when the sound came through, and tongues of fire rested on their heads. They began to speak in tongues, in other languages, proclaiming the goodness and wonders of God. This is exactly what we see happen in Cornelius' house. In the middle of Peter's gospel presentation, the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles, and they begin to engage in that exact same manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We see that in, in several ways, right? We see it in the fact that the Holy Spirit fell. He wasn't called upon. He wasn't called down. It wasn't a magic prayer. It wasn't someone else was trying to give them a blessing. It was not of human origin at all. This was a move of God. God took the initiative. God blew through the room at Pentecost, and God shows up in Cornelius' house. It was the Holy Spirit's move. And it was for everyone. It wasn't like some in the house received the blessing. Everybody in Acts 2 got it. Every single one of them. And in Cornelius' house, every single one of them. It didn't fall and select people that were a little farther along or a little bit more of, a, of, of sort of a slant towards how good God is or a little bit more spiritually mature. This gift of the Holy Spirit fell on everyone that was present. And the results were the same. In Acts 2, the result was speaking in these other languages and tongues, praising the wonders of God. And the exact same thing happens right here in Acts chapter 10. They begin to speak in tongues, and they are praising the wonders of God. And it was so undeniable that this was the same manifestation of the Holy Spirit that even the people there were amazed and astonished. The six Jewish people were like, we've seen this before. In fact, Peter himself says, right, Peter himself says, Can anyone stop these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. It was the same gift. And this is really important. Because it wasn't a lesser outpouring that was given to the Gentiles. 
all right? It wasn't like second-class Holy Spirit that sort of showed up for a different people group. It was the exact same move of God. It came from God's initiative. It fell on everyone, and the result was the same, and it was undeniable to Peter and the Jewish people. And I can't stress how important this is, because if it felt like a second-class blessing on some level, like Peter and the Jewish people that were the first Christians or the first Jewish Christians got the better of the blessing from God, then they would be able to anchor onto that and hold on to the fact that they were somehow a little better than these other people groups. But it was exactly the same, and it was astonishing. And I was surprised by it because they thought, believe it or not, 6,000 years of history, they thought they were better. And God is doing away with all of it, right? So we see this sort of important retelling. We see the same manifestation. But the difference that we see, the only difference that we see, right, the third thing we see, the only difference we see is that this outpouring was for the Gentiles, completely. It was for them. And it, it almost goes without saying, except the fact that it needs to be said. Because these Jewish believers, they were going to need a radical earth-shaking moment to demonstrate that God was opening up the gospel kind of movement to the world. Because we're going to see later on that they're going to try and reject that again. But they had to have an anchor point to realize that this outpouring was for the Gentiles. And they received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized, and they are now part of God's covenant family. And it was radical, and it is a game changer, and it includes you and I. This is why we are allowed to have access to holy God, because through Jesus Christ, he has broken open the floodgates of the nations with the gospel. And we are part of that movement. Now, it may seem like that the Jewish believers, right, are sort of receptive to this thing, right? It may seem like at first that they're like, okay, we had some, you know, bit of an issue, but once you explain it to us, we're all kind of hunky-dory with it. But the reality is that's not the case. Acts 15, there's going to be a huge uproar when they see the implications of actually how many Gentiles come to know Christ, and they have issues with it again. So it's not as pretty as it looks, so there's a couple of things that I was thinking about when I look at this text, because when you take a revolutionary step, a radical step, a deep conviction with the Lord, when you begin to live like a 1 John 2.6 kind of life, and that 1 John 2.6 says that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So if we're going to claim to be followers of Christ, we have to walk as Jesus did. And there's a whole lot that's tied up in there, right? Where we physically put our feet, where Jesus would put, where people he touched, encountered the way that he saw the world, his interaction with the Father, obedience. I mean, we could trace that thing forever. When we truly live that way, that radical kind of revolutionary sort of movement that says, Jesus, I'm going all in with you, right? There's a few things we're going to come in contact with, a few things that we're going to have to have, if you will, that I see in this text. The first is conviction. Peter was deeply convicted. God showed up in his life and said, Peter, something drastic is about to happen. And I am basically telling you that the world is about to change, right? Peter feels that vision. That vision is confirmed in his moments with Cornelius' household. The Holy Spirit falls. He's so convicted by it that he has these folks baptized because they have got the gift of the Holy Spirit. They have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He is deeply convicted by it. 
when we take revolutionary or radical steps in our faith with Christ, it will take deep conviction. It will take conviction that says, God, everything that I'm about to engage in, whether it's just surrendering my life or rejecting materialism or fighting this or whatever it is, will take deep conviction in me. I can't allow the words of my mouth and the actions of my life to not line up. Conviction is that moment where the things that we feel God doing in our heart begin to take action and precedent in our words and our lifestyle. Conviction that's just mental is not conviction at all. It's just thinking. But when conviction takes hold and it alters the way that we live, it becomes real. And Peter had a moment standing at Cornelius' house where he saw the power of God, and he had to decide if he was going to take action and have these people baptized, which he knew might cost him everything, when he had to go home to Jerusalem and tell that he had just baptized and had seen the Holy Spirit fall on a bunch of people they couldn't even be spending time with, and he shouldn't have been in the house in the first place. And so Peter has a moment. Are my convictions about what I've seen God do and what he's done in my heart, the vision he's given me, Am I willing to put to action those things? So most of us will experience God's move. We'll even feel God moving in our life or we'll study the word and he'll do something. We'll hear something here. We'll feel deeply convicted and it won't make one ounce of difference in our life. It won't move us to action. We will feel unsettled. We will feel unpeaceful. We will feel all these things and it won't move us at one moment to live differently. Conviction is where those movements of God begin to take root in our life and behavior. It will take conviction when we begin to live this way, both as a church and as individuals. It will also take criticism. And I don't mean like take criticism like we get to give it. I mean take criticism like we have to receive it. Most of us are really great at giving criticism, right? God convicts us. We feel like that God is doing something different, or we see the gospel this way, or mission this way, or whatever it is. We walk into our establishments, and we say, man, you are doing it wrong. And we look at other churches, and we say, you are doing it wrong, right? That church, I can't believe they do that worship that way, or that guy teaches this way, or this person does that. And we pass our criticism and our judgment on to the world. It's just how we do things. We hold our little banner of righteousness around and think that, Hey, God has shown me the right way, and everybody else needs to either get on that bus or they need to get off. But the reality is, is that when God moves in our life this way, it means that we have to take criticism. Listen to how Peter takes criticism. So he has this incredible movement where the Holy Spirit shows up, and the same giftings that were given out in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost were now given out to Gentiles. And he baptized them, and he spent days with them, and he became close with them. And he walks back to Jerusalem where his friends are, where the people who were his biggest support are. Those people that were there from day one, that stood there at the cross, and that watched Jesus be ascended into heaven, stood there. And he walks back in, and they meet him in the gate, and they jump his case. And all they're operating on is rumor. They hadn't talked to these guys. They're coming together. There's only six of them. Word had spread, and they met Peter at the gate, and they criticized him. What are they criticizing him for? for eating in someone's house where he was unclean. What did Jesus do? He spent his whole life eating in people's houses that were unclean. And yet somehow the religious establishment had so reverted to its old comfortable ways that it was now criticizing Peter for living in a way that Jesus did. And you know what? I don't think one of us would be upset if we looked at, uh, at Peter, if he looked at him and he says, you bunch of whatever, Right? You bunch of idiots. Like, listen, you're mad at me for doing what Jesus did. Fine, I'm on my own. 
You go your own way. The six of us, we're starting our own church because y'all can't do it right. And what Peter does, he takes her criticism. And he pleads with her. He basically says, uh, let, me, let me just tell you what happened. They didn't know, but he takes their criticism and he doesn't jump their case. And there are plenty of times in the gospel we're going to see people come to almost blows. But Peter takes the criticism because taking a revolutionary step that our Christian subculture isn't quite comfortable with, you're going to take some criticism. You're going to take criticism from your Christian family when you begin to do things that don't look like they think things should look. And sadly, this is where most of our criticism comes from. I found that when people live in radical kind of agreement with God's move, most of the criticism does not come from the world. A lot of times the world applauds you for your strength and character to go out and live what you believe. The criticism comes from the church who's sitting back here wishing desperately they were at the place to do that, but would rather have you back here with them so they lob their emotional grenades at you. How could you do that? Maybe God's not telling you that. And, and let me tell you this. We wear that movement with a badge of honor. We love to criticize in the name of theology, in the name of studying the Bible. We love to lob those things from the sidelines. Side note, don't be that person. Don't be the person that meets Peter at the gate and says, what are you doing? Be the person that meets Peter in the gate and says, man, tell me the story because I am confused. But I want to hear because I know you. And what I've heard is pretty remarkable. So tell me what God is doing. Before you pass your judgment and throw your things, hear the movement and the heart of whoever that is. You would be blown away the reconciliation that will happen when you come to a meeting or a movement with that heart that says, tell me first. Let me drop all of my other things about what everybody else has said about you and what you've done or what you've not done. And I load my double barrel shotgun full of gossip rumors and I shoot you before you ever walk in the door. What if we sat and just said, tell me? And if we find error in those ways together, we navigate them. Takes taking criticism, right? And then finally, the thing I want you to see is that it takes fighting for community. The gospel was meant to be lived in community. It was not a solo endeavor. It was not meant for you to be on a crusade by yourself, for Peter to get all of his toys now that everyone's mad at him and leave. It was meant to be lived in community, and that's what Peter fights for. He says, listen, I took six guys with me. I took them because I wanted the witnesses, and I wanted them to share with you what happened. And he walks them through the story word for word for word and doesn't leave anything out because he wants to bring them along. He wants to. He recognizes that community is important. And then what we do with our churches, and when we don't like something that happens, we just get our stuff and we leave. We get a little frustrated that so-and-so's doing this, or I don't know about that, or pastor does this. I get my stuff, and I'll go find the next best church so I realize it's got its own issues too. And then I feel bad, and I can't really go back there because I kind of stomp my feet on the way out. And now I'm kind of stuck with my bag full of stuff, realizing that I was looking for community to give it to me instead of me fighting for community that I was going to be engaged in. We are full of disenchanted Christians. I mean, church grows. Let's be honest. The majority of churches grow in this country because church people just leave other churches. Right? It's not like we're seeing astronomical growth because the masses are being saved. It's whatever's cool or trendy. We grow because people show up because they're disenchanted with whatever. It's not growth. 
It's just people with their bags of toys. As a church, we should long for more than that. We should long deeply for more than that. When we decide to live as revolutionary people following Jesus in a first John kind of way that says we give you everything, we should be willing to fight for community, even when it's incredibly uncomfortable, even when it's hard, and even when we don't like it, and even when the community is broken, we should fight for it. Because it was meant to be lived that way. Broken, sinful people engaging in a true gospel together. For what? Not for themselves, but for the glory and righteousness of God. Because God is glorified. What about you or about me? What we see unfolding here is really a call for us as a church and as individuals. That when we begin to live this way, individually as a church or whatever, like, it will take conviction. Lifestyle, feet that kind of match my mouth. That I will live in a way that I'm proclaiming. My behavior matches the things that God are doing in me. And I'll have to take some criticism along the way, and it's not going to be easy. And it's going to be hard, and my parents or my whoever are going to think I'm crazy. They're not going to get it that God is calling me into this or to do that. But instead of being arrogant and fighting it, I'm just going to embrace it and try and talk through it. Because I'm going to fight for community. Because if this is God really moving in me, then he can bring everybody along as well. So I'm not going to gather my stuff and go pout and stomp my feet on the way out the door to try and find the next church that doesn't offend me or that maybe is a little nicer or whatever it is. Instead, I'm just going to say, no, God, I'm fighting for community here. This is who we're called to be. The question really is, what kind of church, what kind of person are you, are we? What kind of church or what kind of person do we want to be? Because Acts chapter 10 changes everything. We are the community of believers. We've been grafted into God's covenant family. How we live now is a reflection of that truth to the world. 